Welcome to Help from Future Self. What's happening, Archons? Welcome to another episode of Help from Future Self, a conversational Keyforge podcast made by and hopefully listened to by Keyforge friends all around the world. My name is Scuzzy Gruen, also known as Alex. Happy to be back after a couple of weeks of absence, and I am joined, as always, by my Keyforge pals. We got the wheeling Keyforger, Rick. Hey, what's up, all? And Coach Boulevard Paper Fight. What's happening, Blake? Hey, everyone. How's it going? Gentlemen, how is your 2020 going so far? Mine's been going not too bad, except for the dang cold that I can't get rid of. Yeah, mine's uh, mine's been a pretty good start. Yeah, I'm just uh, looking to do some new endeavors and uh, start the year off on some new adventures, I guess. I was saying something about this on Twitter, and I really believe it's true. I think 2020 is going to be a huge year for Keyforge and a huge year for Keyforge players. Um, if you look back at all the changes and cool things that happened in the first real year of the game, 2019, and then apply sort of like that same rate of growth and change to 2020, it, it, we're going to be in such a different place with the game this time in 365 days, I think. I agree. Most definitely, yep. Now, a couple of things that we wanted to talk about right off the top, and this might be one of the first and most interesting things. Um, it was announced a little while ago, but uh, the hype train is getting rolling for Keyforge's Secrets of the Crucible uh, RPG supplement for the Genesis role-playing game system. Shout out to Chris Miller for tagging us in a post about it on Twitter so that we could see all the new information that's coming out. Um, I'm really excited about this. Um, are either of you tabletop gamers? Do you have any D&D history? Very little. I don't simply because I've never had friends who I could play it with. Someday. All right. Well, here here is my pledge. When this book comes out, we're going to get a group together and we're going to play some Keyforge tabletop RPG. Um, I'm super excited about this because it taps into one of the, the most underrated aspects of Keyforge, which is that there is a really cool idea behind the setting of the game. The concept of the Archons, the concept that all of the cards you're playing are characters that are in service of the Archons and their mysterious goals, and the Crucible itself as a setting. Um, I think that this is a wonderful opportunity to get some insight into what that world looks like, and that I think is really going to enrich my playing Keyforge as a game. Um, the idea of you know, you're competing with another Archon towards a specific goal. It makes it less abstract and more something that you can sort of imagine and can set your imagination going in and around your games. Uh, are you guys interested in playing this game with me when it comes out? Most definitely. Oh, yeah. Everything you just said resonates completely with me. The other thing that I'm really hoping for uh, is that we're going to get a lot of new Keyforge artwork in the book. It's a 272-page source book. Obviously, a lot of that is text. But if it's anything like sort of a traditional RPG source book, there should be a ton of artwork in it. If you go to the page on Fantasy Flight's website, um, there is a bunch of artwork that's either expanded from things we've seen before or that we've never seen before that uh, I'm really, really excited. Agreed. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. The other thing that we wanted to talk about right off the top of the show is the fact that uh, some Vault Tour dates have been announced. I don't believe this is all of them, but uh, of the six dates that have been announced right now for North America, only one on the West Coast, which is a bit of a bummer for us out here in Vancouver and no Canadian dates whatsoever. Um, there is one happening in Alameda, California that I guess would be closest to us. Um, that is the one that's happening actually on the USS Hornet, which is pretty cool. Um Guys, are you going to travel to a vault tour, do you think? I can't, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. I uh, mean, for, for myself, the USS Hornet one is the only one on the horizon, but it's literally the month before Worlds, and if I have to prioritize something I'm going to, 
I've kind of decided that I really want to go to the first ever worlds. So uh, no matter whether I have an invite or not, I'm planning on attending that event. So that's kind of the big thing. Like how much is that going to cost versus mm-hmm. uh, going to the the one that's on the USS Hornet, which is really appealing. But I have to weigh those those cost options before really uh, committing to doing both of them. I got to ask, do we know if they're going to be running tons of side events at Worlds? I believe that is the idea. Yes, it's it's like a it's a huge event. I may be mistaken, but but I'm I've re- I believe it's like a vault tour in that sense where they want a lot of people to come out and uh, do side events and whatnot. I mean, that's something I might even consider based on uh, if we can make the the trip worthwhile in terms of uh, you know the, the cost. Airfare from Canada to the states not necessarily as cheap as it is within the states. No, and and especially because we're uh, we're flying like literally across, so you don't even have the discount flights right across the border like we normally get if you're staying on the west coast. Indeed, indeed. So starting things off, uh, it's a Coach's Corner segment, and this one I believe Rick came up because you got a brand new deck that's real smoking hot, but there's one card in it that's giving you a little bit of trouble when it comes to when to play it. Why don't you why don't you lead us in that? Oh, it's it's giving me a lot of trouble. Uh, the card is General Order 24. It's a Star Alliance artifact, trait law. At the start of each player's turn, they must choose a creature they control and destroy each creature of the chosen creature's house. If that p- player has no creatures in play, destroy General Order 24 instead. It seems to nail me more than my opponent, so I don't know if I'm doing something wrong or if I'm playing, like, um, I'm, I'm obviously doing something wrong, but I don't know what I'm doing wrong, why it's nailing me more than it's nailing them. So the first thing I will say is that this is definitely a skill testing card. And I think the main thing you're you're probably doing wrong is you're playing the card. Because it's, it's not a card that needs to be played every time. And I think it's going to be one of those cards that depending on when you get it, you are going to be discarding it rather than playing it. So you have to think about, you have to really look at the board state when you play a card like this because it's going to have an instant impact. So first off, if you are sharing houses with your opponent, it instantly puts you at a disadvantage because they could literally call, like use their own house against you, especially if you have more of a presence than they do. So you always have to be uh, very cognizant of what's happening on both sides of the board. And then likewise, you could do the same thing to them. So if you know you're going to be playing it, you could set yourself up with, you know what, I'm going to play this next turn because the board's really getting out of hand. And I'm going to actually only drop one creature of X house this turn because they're starting to build a board on their side and we share this house. And then when it comes to me, I can literally call this one and wipe their side of the board by, by choosing this creature. So it takes setup. You can't just play it and hope for the best. I think the most ideal way of playing this card is in an early game situation. So your opponent is starting to, you know, they play maybe if they go second uh, is a really ideal way where they're setting up a board and you have your one creature. And what you can do is actually see them play out a few things. You can peg off things that don't relate to the house because the idea is you want to basically like Magic Christmas Land, most ideal way to play this is your opponent only has one house represented on the board. You drop this it goes to their turn. They have to call a house that's on the board. And they have to sac- well, they have to sacrifice a creature that they have. And if it's only one house, that means all their creatures go. 
And then they're faced with a proposition at that point is, do you actually play a creature? Because if they play any creature at this point, they're literally left with, if you don't, if you have a clear board, then it's different because they know it's going to get destroyed. But if you don't, you can literally sacrifice one of your creatures. And then when it goes back to them, they only have the house they just played. So then they have to keep sacking. So you can literally get to a point where they have to allow a turn where they don't play any creatures just to make sure their board's empty to get rid of General Order 24. Or they have it in a way that your board's wiped so that when it goes to you, it gets destroyed. So either way, you need to play in a in a way that it leaves a one-sided situation. And if you're not in that situation and you're heavy on board, you should not be playing this card. It's more like if there's a big established board and you're the one establishing that board, or it's like a tie even, you got to think about the impact that this will have when that goes off, basically. Thank you very much. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, so I think I think when you're in doubt, just discard it. I've already seen some flaws in my play with it, so yeah. Okay, perfect. This is like, there's a few cards I think in Worlds Collide that mm -hmm. have checked this box of it can almost be a trap if you're not careful in how you play it. Fangtooth uh, Cavern. Fa yes, there are these auto there are these auto play things that no matter what happens, they're they're taking effect. Quixel Stone's another one, and then the other one is the big one because if you play the big one at the wrong time, like your opponent can just totally use that and make it trigger on mm -hmm. their dime and not yours. So. Those are these are all cards that are happen to all be artifacts that exist within Worlds Collide that really up the level of play and the thought and skill that needs to go into executing these so that you have a benefit of them. And a lot of these decks you can't just have them in it, or a lot of these cards, sorry, just can't be in the deck and you play them. Sometimes you need the deck to revolve around them to make it truly potent. I also wanted to add to that, I think one of the most interesting things about General Order 24, as well as Fangtooth Cavern, the big one, uh, all the cards that were mentioned, is that it adds a fourth dimensional chess aspect to the game, because the question I oftentimes ask myself before I play, like say for example my three Fangtooth deck is, do I think my opponent understands how to play around this card? And it really adds a psychological aspect to me thinking about that, like... Is this an experienced player? Have I played them with this deck before? Have I seen them playing in and around situations like this? And therefore, are they going to understand how to turn this back on me? Because oftentimes when you spring sort of these trick cards that have a symmetrical effect, they can be very advantageous to you, but only if your opponent doesn't understand how to get around them or how to get past them. Totally, yeah, that's, that's definitely a, a very true statement. And there's also like General Order 24 doesn't even have an Ember Pip, so it's not like there's any loss of discarding it. So if it yep. doesn't seem like there's an advantage to you, just discard it. And then you'll get these moments where I think if you get in a habit of just discarding it for now, you're going to get these moments where you go, oh, I see. Now this is actually going to really work for me. So I think you need to just hold it, look at the board and be like, okay, I don't see this working in my favor. Discard. And you just yeah. kind of keep it that way or you archive it is the other thing. So it's it's waiting for if that moment happens where maybe there's like an axiom of grisk play, for example, where you don't have any captured ember. I think your deck does have dinos in it, doesn't it? Mine, yeah, it does. Yeah, but there could be any, like there could be like a red alert, same sort of thing, like something like that that's going to cause your board to be wiped and not theirs. Then then you have it in the wings waiting for when that's going to be advantageous for you. And that's that's just how you play it, just... Just discard it if if you don't see the line and if don't just play it for the sake of playing it and just wait and see what happens. Yeah. 
Thanks very much for that excellent Coach's Corner segment. All right, moving on. One of the things that we wanted to talk about this week was something I was thinking a lot over my Christmas break. Um, if you listen to the last couple episodes, you'll know that I was not here. Big shout out to Jens and to Jonathan and to Luke for filling in whilst I was not here. They were wonderful guests on the show, and I really enjoyed listening to the episodes. But uh, I, I spent my break basically not playing very much Keyforge. I didn't have a very good internet connection, so there was a lot of difficulty with me being able to use the Crucible. So it was kind of a detox period, and it got me thinking about where I was before Keyforge and when I first came into the game. Um, and one of the things that I started thinking about was, what are the things that I brought to Keyforge with me? What were the assumptions about card games and specifically these sorts of competitive card games that I had in my head when I started playing Keyforge a little over a year ago now? And it was a topic that I thought might be kind of fun for us to talk about here on Help from Future Self. So I wrote out a couple of them, and I'm, I'm going to sort of kick them over to you guys for some thoughts and ideas. Um, the first one I really wanted to talk about, and this is the one that blew my mind when I first started playing Keyforge, is the idea that there's not really such a thing as limited resources in Keyforge. The idea that you can play any card that you have in hand, as long as that is the house that is active, was mind-boggling to me. And I think probably because I was coming from a background of many, many years ago having played Magic and having played many other games where the idea is always, well, you have to have something to enable those cards to be played. And the idea that Keyforge is never really about resource management so much as it is about making the correct play with what you have access to in your hand, knowing that you're going to refill your hand entirely the next turn, that was such a game changer for me, and it's one of the things that I think really sets Keyforge apart. Was that a thing that you guys struggled with at all when you first picked up the game, or that you found intriguing? Definitely. Another thing for me, at least, was the uh, fighting. Fighting matters. I still sometimes am in the magic state of mind where you have to kill your opponent and your opponent's creatures who are blocking your opponent. But in Keyforge, that's not what you do. So I still have a little bit of focus trouble on that one, but I'm learning. Yeah, for, for me, with with the resources, it was very much... I came from a Magic and Pokemon where both require resources to do things. And, I mean, anyone who's been in a position of understanding the term mana screwed knows that 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 is not a fun part of the game, and it can literally make it so that you just like don't have fun. And that's something that cannot really occur. The, the closest thing we have to that is a two, two, two hand in terms of your house composition. And I mean, that usually only lasts for one turn. It's very rare that you have that for multiple turns, especially if you're using some tools to make that work to your advantage of playing the right house in that situation. So I, I definitely have enjoyed not being mana screwed and I actually played some commander with my friend the other night and I did get mana screwed. And it was not fun in the game <laughs> kind of like just like you're just like it's a frustrating game watching someone on the other side of the table play most of the time because not because they did something to prevent you, but just because you don't have what you need to actually move forward with the game. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Um, I, I, I swear I did not bring up this topic just to dunk, dunk rather on Magic the Gathering. Obviously a very popular game, well loved by many people, and I assume by many people who listen to this podcast. 
Um, I played a little bit of Magic Arena when I got my new laptop because I was like, I'd like to see what the digital implementation of this is like. I hear a lot of people play this and it's what Wizards is pushing as sort of like this big, very official competitive Magic thing. And one of the things that I discovered from my time playing it is that so much of Magic seems to be uh, centered around this idea of screwing your opponents so that they can't really play. And although there's an aspect of that in Keyforge, I'm thinking about things like Restringuntis lockouts uh, and so forth, it seems like kind of a lousy way to play the game, to be totally honest. It doesn't seem fun to have a game that is based around the premise of I don't want my opponent to have fun. Uh, I want them to not be able to play and I get to play a game by myself while they sit across the table from me not being able to do anything. Yeah, that is a very interesting aspect of magic of how people go out of the way to make something so broken that once it happens, the game is over. It's it's it is a very interesting thing, and I mean, everyone likes winning, I think, to a degree, and that's mm-hmm. that's yep. probably a, a big part of it. So, uh, if you can figure out the way to make that happen and have the combo so that does happen, I mean, why would you not do it? Another thing that I really wanted to talk about, and this is one that I think is so key, if you will, no pun intended, to understanding how to play Keyforge is the idea of, um, in so many other games that I've played, uh, I'm thinking about things like, uh, of course, Magic Ascension, um, uh, the old vampire game, and so on and so forth. You're working towards these um, multi-turn strategies that are essentially um, about holding on to good cards as you draw them and working up to being able to play them. And although obviously we don't play every single card that we can every single turn necessarily, Keyforge is so different in terms of tempo. And I find very frequently I'm never holding bombs so much as I am, this is a good card, but I'm going with this other house this turn because it's more advantageous for me to do it. And I'll get to this one later, depending on what the board state is like. Is that a thing that you guys thought about as you were starting to develop your initial Keyforge thoughts, strategies, ways of playing the game? I'm still learning that aspect, so I'm converting into that, but I, I didn't bring that with me as I started out now. Yeah, I, I mean, part of it is if, depending on what games you play, but I mean, from my background of really playing collectible card games in Pokemon and Magic, Pokemon doesn't have it because just of the nature of the game, you're not really holding a bomb. Of the, the just the style of play doesn't work that way. It's the the way the turn based play works is very similar to Keyforge in that sense, where mm-hmm. you don't need to do anything while your opponent's playing. You're just waiting. And in Magic, I think because you can do things where you can react to your opponent's actions and the choices they make, it makes you hold things for that exact moment, and it creates that that necessity to plan in terms of leaving resources available to use something and to be holding this card. And because there's no downside to holding a card because of the draw factor there's there's no reason not to just be patient and wait for that most opportune moment to take advantage of a situation where in keyforge when you're holding that you're actually it's like it's like pretty much if if you're going to do a parallel to magic it's like saying you know what i'm just going to keep my land tapped this whole time Mm -hmm. and just be playing with one less mana for for the duration of while i have this card it's kind of this the equivalent in terms of the way resources work between the two games and I think that's an interesting thing in Keyforge because there you do have that value proposition of holding a card because you want to make a big play. 
And I think that differs in magic because there there isn't really that same downside that can exist within Keyforge because that means every turn you're holding it, you're drawing one less card. I think the last concept that I really wanted to talk about sort of in terms of other collectible card games is one that we've heard discussed quite a bit by the designers. Um, it's been brought up by Brad Andrus numerous times in various interviews that he's had, is the idea of rarity not necessarily being better in Keyforge. Now, I gotta ask you, Blake, I've never played Pokemon. Are rare cards better than common cards in Pokemon? 100%, yeah. They have, they, they have a level of rarity that I think is much greater than most games because you have the commons you have uncommons and you have rares then you have like secret rares and you have ultra rares and it's some of them are just different versions of art but then as it scales up they usually result in a, a certain type of card that's extremely powerful so yeah the rarity is a very big thing and the chance of getting some of these becomes even less like most most guard games that collect through a pack sort of style of play there's generally one rare the potential for a second rare in a holographic form usually and then you have um like more commons than you do uncommons and that's just the way that the packs play out yeah the, the idea with keyforge that uh, especially in sort of coda and aoa a little bit less so in wc where i think there's a couple of very powerful rare cards um that are sort of universally very powerful um i liked the idea in the first two sets that rarity is oftentimes about not necessarily having the biggest and best card it's about having something interesting and unique that changes either the way your deck plays or the way that the overall game state will work or they're for very specific instances so they're either specific house hate cards or you know a specific trait hate take that smart like hats that. yeah exactly precisely um i really like that about keyforge because it means that uh, almost every deck, because most decks are made up of commons and uncommons, almost you know entirely, except for you know between two and six rares, they're going to have lots of great cards. And the fact that so many amazing cards, especially in Coda, were printed at common, made so many decks very exciting. Um, the idea that things like Mother, uh, you know, other great Shadow Steel cards. Um, all the best brobs and untamed cards. Untamed especially. Calm Officer in Kirby. Yeah, Calm Officer Kirby. Like that would w be a rare in any other game, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Oh, because definitely. it's so powerful, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and WC does have like the house leaders who I think are are universally pretty great and are also very rare. Um, you know, and they are a bit removed, I think, from sort of uh the, the power level of a lot of the common and uncommon cards. But up till this point, I really do feel like that's one aspect of the game that makes it really incredible and unique. The idea that it's not about the rares in your deck, it's about something much more complex, which is the way your cards work together as a suite. And, you know, having those options available to you. And that's one of the things uh, Brad mentioned when he was on Call of Discovery with Ed, is he mentioned that sometimes he puts cards at a rare level because they should not be seen more because you don't want to see those cards like if they're not something that you'll be excited to play with but they exist because there's situations in which they can do something but most of the time they're not going to be useful and so by putting them at the rare you don't see them as often like take that smarty pants and therefore they exist and can do something when it does go off but you don't have to worry about it constantly being there in a dead card as a result absolutely the other thing too when you're talking about the rare aspect of cards is i actually remember 
when I first started opening Keyforge decks, I remember like I was still in the Pokemon scene and I was just transitioning out and I was still seeing some people there and I was like, yeah, check out this deck because there's someone who had a Keyforge deck. And I was like, check it out. It has five rares. And I was like, I was like, isn't that cool? And, and literally not realizing that meant absolutely nothing. It was, and I still remember that moment like so clearly. And it literally had no bearing on the power or the quality of the deck. So it was it was kind of interesting looking back on that moment through this discussion and having that vivid memory of thinking that the rares mattered because they they really didn't. And I mean, there was even some stores that were selling some open decks and you could tell their pricing was based on the amount of rare cards, even though the deck was pretty garbage. So that's kind of a, an interesting, yep. an interesting take on on the way a lot of people viewed it coming from one game to another because rare always meant the same thing like this was a good card and you don't see it very often if you were building a keyforge deck from scratch like uh, you know you you uh, you save brad andrus's life and he says to reward you i'm gonna let you design your own keyforge deck but it can only be made up of common cards you could make the bangingest deck of all time oh for sure oh yeah well maybe not me but <laughs> i know <laughs> I think you could make a pretty good deck rick both of you could make a very good deck. I agree. I think we all could. There's there's cards that are your favorite. And I mean, you could say, I want four of this. <laughs> yeah. All right. We're running towards the end of the show, but we could not finish an episode of Help from Future Self without the titular segment. You know what? It's Help, Help from, future, from future, self. future Self. Gentlemen, I have one for us this week. Oh, uh, it pains me to say this a little bit, mostly just because uh, I like to think of myself as a pretty like level-headed uh, player. And somebody who doesn't let people get their goat very much. Um, I'm just going to put this one out here. Um, if someone's being a jerk to you, don't respond to them as a jerk in gameplay. Um, I had an experience on the Crucible last week where uh, I was playing and somebody made uh, what I thought was a really uncool comment to me about uh, something that I had done in the game. They were salty, obviously, about something. And rather than just letting it go or ignoring it, I responded in the same tone. And I felt so terrible about it afterwards because one of the things that we always talk about uh, on Help for Future Self is that good Keyforge players model the behavior that they want to see in the Keyforge scene. And if somebody comes at you talking some sauce, being salty and not in a friendly way, I mean, obviously a little bit of trash talk at the table, I think that's cool, you know, especially too if it's somebody you're friendly with. But if somebody comes at you that way and instead of, either responding, you know, to cruelty with kindness or literally just ignoring it entirely and not sinking to that level. If you throw that back at them, you're not making Keyforge a better place. You're, you're may bringing everybody down to that level, including yourself. And it's something that I, I felt really ashamed about afterwards. And to be perfectly honest, you know, I, I kind of want to hunt that person down and say, hey, look, <laughs> you know, that wasn't a cool thing for me to say. Uh, you know, I hope if we play again that it would be a good game. But uh, just just something to think about uh, if you're at the table or at the virtual table and uh, there's some smack talk going on. Very good advice. Yep. All right. That's going to be it for this episode of Help from Future Self. You can find us on Twitter at HFFS Podcast and, of course, at patreon.com slash HFFS Podcast. You can find me at Scuzzy Gruen on Instagram and Twitter and on The Crucible. Where can they find you, Rick? On The Crucible at Rickster78 and on Twitter at The Wheeling Keyforger. Where can they find you, Blake? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Boulevard Paper Fight. That's B-L-V-D Paper Fight. 
and I'm also on the Crucible under the same name. Unfortunately, I have some weird thing going on with my with the Crucible on my computer, and I don't know why, where I can't see any games in progress. So I have to create games. So please come join my games if you see it. All right. We are going to have something so cool to talk about next week, a style of play that none of us has ever tried before. It's going down tomorrow night in Van City. Until then, we love you. Stay forging. <laughs>